You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of our RSAC 365 podcast series. We have a great conversation lined up for you today with a special guest moderator, Ben DeMarco. But before I turn it over to Ben, I wanted to take a moment to recognize our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Exonius. Exonius helps organizations immediately know what assets they have and shows which devices, cloud instances, and users adhere to or deviate from security policies. Try it for free at exonius.com forward slash RSAC. And now I'd like to turn it over to Ben to advance the conversation by introducing himself and our panelists. Thank you very much, Casey, and thank you to RSA for the opportunity to have this podcast today. The topic that I'll be exploring with my co-panelists is the ransomware paradigm change, lesson from insurers and breach coaches. To set the scene, what we really wanted to do was give people a high-level understanding of what's generally happening in the ransomware incident response space, what those crisis events are looking like, and also to try and come at it from the lens of the insurers and the breach coaches who are living these events every single day. I'm incredibly fortunate today to be joined by an exceptional group of panellists. Today, I'll be talking with Christina Turplin. Christina is a founding partner and president of Ethereum Law. Her practice focuses on technology, IP and privacy law. She works on a broad range of claims brought against technology and media companies. Uh, She's also an expert in the cyber breach incident response space, and a number of her work includes helping insurers and carriers. Uh, understanding these events, uh, working as a coverage council, and also providing support to organisations as they go through ransomware and other critical events. We also have today Marcello Antonucci from Beasley, who is a cyber and executive risk group leader, uh, providing insurance coverage across the technology ENO, intellectual property, media, advertising, privacy, and cyber liability space. Marcello sits as a global cyber and tech claims leader for Beasley, working out of their New York office. His expertise crosses across data privacy, cybersecurity matters, and also working with organisations as they go through the ins and outs of addressing these cyber events. My name is Ben DeMarco. I'm a private practice lawyer by trade, but work with Willis Towers Watson, a risk advisory and insurance company. My expertise extends across incident response, data privacy, cyber loss quantification, and the way in which insurance policies support organisations during cyber and other events. So that's a brief introduction of us in the panel. What I'm going to do now is throw to our first question. And to start the discussion, I want to look at the types of losses and financial harms we're seeing organisations face where they have ransom events at the present moment. Uh, We hear a lot about businesses being crippled. We hear a lot about huge extortion demands. And the first question that we're going to throw to is how much of this is fact, how much of this is fiction, what's hype? And uh, Christina, I'll uh, get you to start with this one. Well, I'll start off, um, and unfortunately, I think it's bad news in that ransomware is extremely high frequency um, right now. And I was even reading it on the New York Times yesterday where they had a report, and the figures are that last year there was a successful ransomware attack once every eight minutes. So that's 65,000 successful attacks. So it is a really high frequency type of event right now. Um, I do think, though, that the media hype where they're focusing on these being really, really significant events with the extortion payments are in the millions, that's not as common. The more um, frequent event 
is that they are smaller demands um, being asserted with these types of attacks. But unfortunately, it is happening all the time, and it is oftentimes locking up companies and shutting them down um, completely. Marcello, did you have any thoughts on uh, the hyper-fiction? So, Ben, you know, I think, unfortunately, um, that one is fact. Um, as Christina mentioned, this is an everyday occurrence in terms of ransomware, um, the surface area of information security um, exposures um, gives the bad actors and the threat actors a lot of opportunity. Um, and we're seeing uh, ransomware events from very large uh, to small on an everyday and weekly occurrence. I agree with Christina. The big ones are less frequent, but we're also seeing cycles. So not only is it very steady, but we've seen over the last three years periods of time where the velocity of both volume and severity increases, and the number of threat actors that are involved, and um, their extortion attempts getting more sophisticated and more severe. Thank you. And I might add that maybe this is, might be one of those cycles right now. I mean, on June 2nd, the Biden administration issued a memo on ransomware, and it's literally entitled, What We Urge You to Do to Protect Yourself Against the Threat of Ransomware. I mean, I think we're probably in the midst of one of those cycles right now. Hmm. Reflecting uh, what organizations need to do and how to challenge or respond to ransom events, I think one of the issues that's poorly understood is the types of work streams or the types of crisis processes that an organization will go through when they have a ransom attack. Marcello, could you start by just giving the audience some insights into what these processes look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is where I have nothing but the utmost empathy for organizations going through these um, issues because... It's, it's not like the past events just continue. Uh, it's also a reminder that ransomware is a subset of something much larger, which is cyber extortion. Uh, and that's really a lot of what we've seen over the last uh, three to five years and certainly over the last year in terms of not just a disruptive event that's aimed to cripple a business, as you mentioned, Ben, um, to create an event where the daily loss of profit or revenue uh, is easy to calculate and um, certainly is more expensive than paying the ransomware demand. Um, as companies got more robust over the last two years in terms of backup tapes and their ability to recover, the bad guys have evolved their cyber extortion to include exfiltration of data, shaming, uh, and other really nasty behaviors to get people to pay. And so, you know, what we've seen then is opening up a whole stream of work for the organization to do, get back up and running. The breach response part, we're very much back to breach when you have an exfiltration in terms of whether you have a privacy event, um, and then also whether or not you want to pay or need to pay uh, the ransom demand and, uh, you know, some sophisticated data recovery efforts. So you have four or five work streams that involve different parts of the business, sophisticated outside experts, all trying to coordinate and make the best decision in a few hours or a few days. It's a very difficult situation um, for folks that keeps evolving as the threats evolve, as I mentioned. From your side, Christina, what do you typically see on uh, the work stream element and what's happening in that immediate period after an organization is hit by a ransom attack? Yeah, I mean, on the work stream, I think you really see three parallel tracks happening right away. So you have the negotiation um, and decisions of whether or not to pay a ransom or not. So you have that going on. 
at the same time, you have a separate um, work stream of like, can you rebuild? You know, is there some type of way to rebuild without paying? So some type of data rebuild, business um, disaster recovery operations of how to operate while things are locked down. And then on top of that, there's that legal analysis where you're working with lawyers and forensic experts to try to see what impact of the information that was involved. And is there any legal ramifications and breach notification obligations, um, either to the public, um, to customers, or to regulators um, as a result of the attack as well? So as Marcello was saying, there's you know, different areas of a business are all operating at like 150% capacity at the same time immediately after one of these attacks. And, and one other thing I would add to what Christina mentioned, you, know, you have this stacking of work streams that are really complicated. They're, they're trying to coordinate and make the best decision. The whole world knows you're down, and you guys don't have maybe even operating systems. Um, it's a very difficult to communicate. Um, and one thing that has definitely changed over the last year to 18 months is sometimes you think you've got a good handle of it temporally. You're back up and running. You don't need to pay. And then it changes and it shifts. The exfil cyber extortion that could come in a week later uh, or even the shaming site that comes in two weeks later has elongated this already complicated process. It means that this sort of cyber extortion decision-making process can be not just hours and days like it was, but weeks. Um, and then you have business interruption and data recovery that can take months and even longer to really understand. Just to pick up on one of the points you made, Marcello, was the concept of some of the shaming and some of the other types of extortion actions that are occurring in the space. Did you want to just quickly for the audience explain what you mean by that shaming or that kind of double, triple extortion attack method that, that we see now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is where, you know, it's really unpleasant. Um, these threat actors have invested a lot. They have high expectations for their return on investment, and they're not taking no for an answer, whether it be no, we're not paying out of principle, or no, we're not paying because we can get back up and running, or no, we don't care about that data. Uh, they start to reach out, in some instances, to the uh, clients or the folks that are mentioned in some of the data they've exfiltrated, saying, hey, the company that you thought was protecting your data isn't, and you should talk to them about paying this demand rather than me dumping it on the dark web. Additionally, they'll stand up on social media or other dark web sites, shaming sites, and say, hey, we have the data of so-and-so organization. They won't pay us. They're not really protecting your data and information the way you should, and they certainly are, are being cheap about solving the problem. It's only X amount. And this is where some of these threat actors try to play this um, in fact, they're testing the data privacy and, and information security world. So it can be very challenging at those stages. Christina, one question that I suppose a number of people in the audience will have is, how do you actually negotiate or deal with a ransomware actor when the nature of the threat is that they might go to your client or that they might do something in a publication sense that could trigger legal or other types of privacy liabilities? Do you have any thoughts on the way in which those issues play out at the moment? <laughs> I mean, how does one negotiate? I mean, I think it definitely puts the victim. I, I see a lot more inclination to pay when there's that type of threat, um, at least initially. I am starting to see, I think as it's becoming more common, um, there's more a little bit more pushback where this is becoming more of the norm 
And so it may not just be this, okay, we'll pay and it'll all go and disappear. From the downstream liability side, though, what's interesting is that it's probably too early to really see how this is going to play out. But the courts have not shown that the lawsuits will be less catastrophic in terms of cost and or that lawsuits won't even be filed if a company pays versus doesn't pay. I mean, I'm still seeing where a company pays a ransom, the information, you know, gets destroyed and it's not posted on the dark web. Those companies, unfortunately, are still getting sued. And I'm not seeing the courts take in, like, dismissing the lawsuits because the victim paid the ransom. I mean, the idea is that the information still went out there, the bad guy still had it, and why will the plaintiffs really believe when the bad guys pinky swore that they destroyed it? I mean, it doesn't hold up from a legal liability perspective. So that's one thing is that from the liability side, I'm not seeing the decision to pay versus not pay have a meaningful impact on the outcome of that. I don't know, Marcello, if you're saying anything different. No, no, I think it's a really good point about what you're paying for in the Xville, right? Um, it's just the promise not to dump the detailed information onto the dark web. It's not your promising uh, to make this go away. You very well may have a privacy issue that you need to notify folks about. You can have legal liability. You know, it's still going to have a, a conversation about what is the root cause and whether you are in, in any way negligent in your information security procedures, practices, or purchases. So you're really paying for a very small slice and ultimately trusting a bad actor not to not to dump it anyway. Um, and so I, I think it's a really tough call for folks uh, to try to figure out a way to value, you know, that um, promise. I mean, what's the problem with having all this information out there? Some of it is about the value of sensitive information. Some of it is about proprietary information or client information and uh, folks have to make really difficult calls about making sure to try to protect things that are that sensitive and pay millions of dollars sometimes for it. Again, a very difficult decision. This is where I would plug experts, right? There are expert privacy counsel who are starting to litigate these things, help people make these valuations. Uh, they can benchmark a bit about what the threat actor does, doesn't do, how, how they've negotiated Additionally, the ransomware negotiators have a ton of data about tactics, behaviors, uh, negotiating strategies, how much folks will negotiate when they've hit their bottom line from a, from a bad guy perspective. They're invaluable in testing a strategy uh, about whether to pay, uh, how much to pay, and when you, you sort of make the call to pay. The reference you made there to Marcello around the privacy as well as that the legal and the regulatory, this is probably something that isn't really understood in the wider market. So firstly, when we're thinking about the legal and regulatory issues that arise from cyber and ransomware events, have there been any recent changes in this space? And again, you've made this point, Christina, that paying the ransom won't necessarily reduce legal exposure. Uh, do you think that message has got out to the wider community or do you think this is still something that's not really well understood? Well, I'd just say, I mean, try to break things down. Fundamentally, a ransomware event, and as we discussed in the work streams, are issues that have been addressed in breach response and data breach um, regulatory and class actions. It's not surprising that what we see after ransomware event, uh, regulatory inquiries uh, about what happened and what data was at issue and how things were addressed, uh, 
but additionally that class actions would um, be filed, um, particularly in areas in which class action attorneys are active, like hospitals, wondering what happened, um, what data was at issue, if any, uh, what services weren't able to be rendered. So they tend to very much morph, while the facts are different, but they tend to morph a lot like a data breach class action would. Um, and so we have seen a maturation of the uh, over the last couple years, um, and they start to play out very much the same way. But that doesn't make them any less difficult. It also means that you've now elongated something that was extremely challenging for days and weeks to make a decision about, um, and then you have business disruptions, and now you're dealing with litigation, class action, settlements. The press continues for potentially years. So it's, a, it's an unfortunate reminder how the tail of these can also be uh, quite difficult to deal with. Is that reflecting your experience and what you've been saying, Christina? Yeah, definitely. And I think on top of that, another big regulatory issue immediately following attack is all the, the OFAC concerns. So with the OFAC guidance that was issued on ransomware in October um, and highlighting the fact that you have to ensure that the money is not going, if a ransom payment is going to be made, it's not going to anyone that's on the SDN list or um, to an embargo jurisdiction. And so that's just another added complication and potential um, regulatory issue now that the entity has to deal with and consider in the immediate aftermath of one of these attacks. Just uh, picking up on that point you made, Christina, with uh, the sanctions interplays and some of those other tensions, can you explain to some of the audience how you think about and how you analyze those issues when you're in the throes of a ransomware crisis? Very carefully. <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's something where the ransomware negotiators, they have that expertise, and that is where all this tracking of information. I mean, I think, you know, there's obviously ransomware happening a lot, which is bad for um, the economy and the community at large, but on the positive side, there's more and more fact points now that can be tracked. And then the ransomware negotiators are tracking all this information, any intelligence information about the strains of ransomware and which groups are they attributed to. So making sure that there's involvement with law enforcement and that you have a negotiator who can do the OFAC and all of the checks with respect to the threat actor um, is really critical. Um, and that seems to be the best approach at this point. One thing I would add here, and again, I, I don't want to be overly doom and gloom, but um, there are some signs of hope in, in terms of you know, over the last like, three years, 13 months, three weeks, niche solutions are being and have been created to address a lot of the issues we've talking about in terms of whether to pay or not to pay and having ransomware facilitators. That industry has literally cropped up over the last, two or three years, and it's quite robust now. Um, data recovery um, becoming a much more important part of this uh, equation. We're seeing more and more robust and tailored and narrowly targeted vendors. And Christina mentioned, you know, the OPEC and sanctions compliance work. There are vendors uh, who do work in terms of understanding where the payments are going to be made from a chain analytics perspective. There are lawyers that are focusing on this literally developing workflows as we speak to deal um, with what they're seeing and the issues and the facts. So that's one thing I would say is, while this is all very challenging and difficult and unfortunate, um, 
there are solutions, and you know your, your various partners in law, financial services, and insurance can help direct you to who's the expert at, at what you need to face. So another good point to highlight, much Alan, that we do obsess around sometimes the concept of whether you should or whether you shouldn't pay the ransom, and that's obviously a very significant issue for any organisation with a whole bunch of stakeholders they've got to consider. But that by itself, as we've talked about, is only a small part of all of the crisis challenges that go on. And really, I think a good message for people listening is if you're going to do cyber tabletops, if you're going to think about these exercises, or even if you're going through a real event, obviously the due diligence that we do into the events and the process is important, but often it's all of these other challenges that sit around recovery, that sit around response and that sit around managing legal and other risks that can be even more exhausting and challenging. So I think a good message to take from this section is maintaining that wide view and dealing with all of these other issues is absolutely critical to what's going to be an effective response. Going to a slightly different point now, uh, another key challenge for organisations is how they're thinking about their cyber insurance policy, where they're going to be responding to a major ransom event. What work typically needs to be done in order to get the reimbursements and payments of uh, ransom and extortion amounts from a company's insurance cover. Christina, I might throw this to you firstly. I think the most important issue is to make sure that the insurer is notified very early. So, I mean, and I'm saying it's that way because you get the consent from the insurer as to any payments that are being made, any vendors that are engaged, um, that's going to make the recovery process much easier. And it's not even just, I have to emphasize, making sure you get the money back, but also these cyber insurers deal with this all the time. Um, so they have a lot of expertise, a lot of discounts that um, as an entity, if you're suffering one of these attacks, to take advantage of that. And so I think the biggest and most important thing is to notify the insurer and work with them in order to ensure that there is no complications on the recovery process. Yes, Christina, I, I absolutely agree as well. Early, um, often, even with small events, um, notification is important. It helps to make sure that uh, you're communicating, you're getting the value of their expertise, and then obviously clearing any conditions about consent uh, that may be required, flagging any issues. And that's where, you know, I really, again, highlight the value of objective external partners who help, you know, you just navigate these issues but also, you know, can kind of flag areas of concern or, you know, help you to navigate a business decision. Right? The decision uh, to pay is an important one, and from our perspective, it's the policyholder's decision, whether it be a principled one or a practical one or one that they're making based on business calculations. But you should also understand how your insurance works. It's not all about the cyber extortion cover to pay that ransom demand. It may also be about the business interruption coverage or the data recovery costs that could be um, also covered, or how the third-party liability part of the policy plays. You really want to have a full understanding of how your policy, you know, can respond and dovetails and covers the various decisions you may need to be making in a holistic way. I think that's a, a really key part so that you don't overly focus on one part of the process. You can make a business decision that you feel comfortable with um, over time. I certainly echo what you said, Marcello, and another issue I'd flag just for some of the listeners is understanding the way in which that ransom recover within the insurance policy is designed to work. We have a number of clients where they assume it will be the insurer that will make the payment on their behalf to the malicious actor. 
uh, with the nature of the different financial reporting obligations insurers have, that's firstly a position that they don't want to be in. But also, when you look at the mechanics around how many of these policies work, there's a reimbursement function. So I think your message that the organisation itself needs to own the decision and it is the organisation's decision needs to be front and centre. Insurance is certainly a very important support, but uh, again, organisations that have the expectation that the insurer will just make the payment for them in five, six hours, uh, that's not really realistic, at least uh, that's kind of my view, unless uh, either of you think differently. No, and I would just highlight another sort of part of this that, at least from our perspective and on my policies, are, are, are reimbursement only. I know that most of them are. So that means you do have to find the, the money and make sure that you have someone that can get the Bitcoin. There's also a banking element here. The banks only work certain hours. They also have their own checks these days based on some of the things that Christina mentioned. So it's another part of this logistical challenge uh, that you need to be mindful of, of making sure you have the money, getting it to the right place in time and clearing whatever the banks want uh, so that you can uh, meet the demands of the threat actor. It's something, another reason why you want to have a really seasoned ransomware negotiator. They know all of these ins and outs that can help you um, get ready for whatever you want to do. I love the fact that even though it's an emerging industry, we've already got seasoned ransomware. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's true. They haven't been doing it for 20 years, but they've been doing it for a few years. For sure. Um, Slight tangent now, and this concept of the threat actors, what they're worth, whether you can trust them. Obviously, sometimes we need them just to get the decryption key so we can go about and do our work. But even when that happens, or even when it's a publication threat, there's always this hanging sort of Damocles over you of whether there might be a reinfection or there might be a future attack. Uh, how do you both think about the issue of, firstly, can we trust them? And secondly, if you make the payment, does that just put you in neon red lights as being a soft target for a future attack? I might throw this to you firstly, Marcello. Yeah, no, I mean, there does appear to be some honour among thieves. Um, you know, and again, the ransomware negotiator and facilitator is an important person uh, in this to help you navigate whether you can trust them, whether there's any, any issues about producing a key or um, not living up to promises in terms of exfiltration. But when, from our experience, when a threat actor has been identified as a repeat player that can be trusted, they're often trusted. I would say one caveat is if they shut down, get shut down, are operating as a ransomware, as a service, lose their license in the process, they may not be there to do the things they promised. We have seen that in real time where they get shut down and that everyone's just left um, where they are with an encrypted system and no way to recover. But for the most part, they do live up to their promises and there's ways to negotiate in a way to, to verify that, and particularly with new threat actors, making sure that they're um, verifiable. So that's where you really need an expert to help you navigate this process. Just that comment you made before about losing their license. Uh, For people in the audience, could you just explain that? There are a variety of business models in the ransomware game. Some of the groups appear to be fairly well-structured, and uh, they have the technology, and they have the services from a demand and payment perspective, and um, it all seems to be contained in uh, one place. Others have a business model that is much more of a licensing and a ransomware is a service. They take their technology and they deploy it, and there's a licensing and 
uh, transaction costs, and other folks throughout the dark web are the ones deploying their technology and services. And in those cases, you know, uh, it's much more diffuse. Uh, and if they have their license pulled in real time, you may lose the ability uh, to recover. So, uh, again, something that the ransomware negotiators and facilitators uh, can really help you understand about what type of organization you're dealing with, who the threat actor might ultimately be, uh, and, again, help you navigate that risk of whether the, you know there could be a problem in the end. Um, one thing I would mention also about the sort of re-engagement of these, sometimes we do see two things. One, if the problem isn't fixed, other threat actors come in. You know, if you leave the door open and one thief comes in, he tells his buddy other thieves come in. Uh, so we have seen that. Uh, so you have to correct your information security issues. Uh, we do on rare occasions, and it can be tied to certain threat actors, they will come back for another round for various reasons. Uh, maybe they're actually more successful and they reinfect. And so that's something to be mindful and, again, talk to the expert about uh, in real time about what the, the risks of a continuing event are. Thanks, Marcello. Christina, from uh, your side, do you agree with uh, Marcello's comments on the cottage industry of trust that is ransomware? Yeah, I completely do. I mean, shockingly, I would say the vast majority are trustworthy and that they are usually follow through with their promises. If the companies do not believe that they're really going to get the decryption key or if they're going to pay and the information is still going to be exfiltrated, you know, why is a company ever going to make a big payment? It's not worth it. And so you are seeing the threat actors, for the most part, follow through with the promise. Um, Though I am, like Marcello, also seeing there are some threat actors where they're known for re-extorting. And so maybe they need a decryption key, but then they say, oh, what you don't want to exfiltrate also, you'll need to pay, need to pay an extra amount. Um, I am starting to see that for sure. And on the rare occasion where they just don't follow through with the promise, and we can only hypothesize about what happened. Did they lose their license? Did they get arrested? You know, what happened? But the communication channel is shut off. And there's one caveat here, I think, um, in terms of whether they'll live up to their promises. The assumption that Christine and I are, are, are operating under is that this is a transaction, right? And that the um, ransomware was intended to ask for money. There's the possibility that someone doesn't want money. They just want disruption. So, um, and, that, and that has happened. The non-petty event is an example of time where it wasn't even about money. There was ransomware, but there was no cyber extortion. And so all these companies were left with has been widely and highly publicized is just disruption. And so it's another reminder that, uh, and Ben, you mentioned tabletopping, you know, you should plan. Do you want a principled approach? You're not going to pay, or you're going to take a more practical approach and you would pay, but sometimes you may not be able to pay uh, because of the type of attack. There could be a sanctions issue. So you have to still plan for everything. Marcello, one of the points you just mentioned, and not Petra is a great case study of that, there are situations where you're simply not going to be able to get decryption keys or where making the ransom payment isn't going to terminate or end the action. Do you think organisations are aware of the challenges where this happens? And if you were to be in the shoe of an organisation having one of these ransomware attacks and uh, the extortion threat just doesn't terminate, just doesn't end, what are the key things that you'd be focused on or the key bits of advice that you'd be giving? Yeah, no, I mean, I think... Business continuity um, and disaster recovery are the new part of breach response. 
And so I, I do think there has been a lot of education and improvement there as this ransomware epidemic has picked up over the last three years. And again, I mentioned why the threat actors have to uh, move to nastier bits of cyber extortion. You know, I think there's a continuing evolving area in terms of um, what are you doing from a, a disaster recovery uh, and business continuity perspective and migrations to cloud, uh, making sure that you have offsite uh, and remote backups. Um, I think a key here that we have seen is even though you say you have it all, have you really tested it against a ransomware event? Have you gone to an expert to help you really make sure that all of your plans and the details are going to work out? We have seen folks whose best laid plans have been disrupted by how nasty and uh, persistent the threat was um, in terms of the ransomware event. Um, and so, again, some future-proofing is what I would advocate, very specific uh, to a ransomware event, not just the, the traditional, oh, we don't have access to our systems and um, a traditional business continuity and disaster recovery um, impact. And then one last thing I would just say, you know, have plans from a communication record-keeping perspective. You may not have access to your traditional systems and computer, so work with folks on understanding, like, how are we going to stand up a shadow world, a shadow system? How are we going to le leverage our external vendors? I think those are really key bits of work that folks can do. Anything that you'd add there, Christina? No, I completely agree. I mean, I feel like it's a lot of the tabletops or the CD's recovery disaster plans are assuming that a payment would be made and that decryption keys received within a week and that you're working off of that. And I would think the prudent plan would also include the real likely possibility that no payment is made and that you're starting from scratch. And then I mean from scratch, like no one has work email. Um, their work phones aren't working because they're voice over IP. I mean, it's really interesting to see companies when they're responding to one of these events and you know, everyone has to come up with a Gmail address or, a, a, you know, you're creating a whole new media ecosystem even to start working on your disaster recovery plan. Um, so to really be conscious of, you know, the payment may not be made and you're going to be starting from scratch. Yeah, and I would just highlight we've had clients who lost data forever. And sometimes they can manage through that. It was legacy, it didn't need it anyway kind of deal. But, you know, you want to make sure that you don't lose what you really need forever and that you're in a position um, to recover as quickly, efficiently, and as planned as possible. I'd certainly echo both of those points. And another thing certainly that we see from our experience is there is a confidence people have in their disaster recovery and backup processes that... Uh, is probably born slightly of good intention, but also naivety. Uh, we had an issue with one of our clients a few weeks ago where, again, they had very good backup processes, things going to take constantly, but because they didn't have the quality of logs, they couldn't work out when the actual underlying infection was. And so if you don't know when the infection is, you don't know what backup to go to. And in their case, even though they had these amazing disaster recovery processes, they'd done all the tabletops, something practical like that meant they were acting completely outside of what they would have assumed would have been the process and they had to rebuild from scratch. So a uh, good lesson that uh, unfortunately these things aren't as simple and aren't as clear-cut as often uh, we present them to be. But you can fun. seek help, right? You know, you can mm -hmm. seek help in your planning process, right? You know, the, the lawyers are involved in the forensics and maybe you've now involved the ransomware negotiator and facilitator, but this is the one we would advocate for 
a data recovery expert to help you. Make sure that you are future-proofing for the event that you may call on them to help you recover from. And so, again, bringing a different vendor, an objective outside person to really test you is something that we advocate for. Data recovery has been a pretty mature market, very localized. It's becoming even more responsive to this threat. There are folks that focus on ransomware events, and they can help you certainly not after the fact, but we advocate for a proactive approach and what type of tools, systems, and practice are available to you and, you know, that can help you um, recover as fast as possible. Taking a slightly wider view now, there's obviously a huge amount of focus both in the U.S. and internationally on some of the major U.S. cyber incidents uh, when we're recording this. Colonial Pipeline is only about a month old and it's still doing the rounds. Looking at it, though, globally, Marcello, do you think there's any difference in terms of how ransomware events are playing out in the U.S. as opposed to what we're seeing in the rest of the world? Yeah, and uh, we, we have a global book, so we do get to see the full view. Certainly, uh, this problem is very prevalent in the U.S. Uh, and migrated to Canada, uh, and we've already talked about the volume and severity. Uh, we are starting to see activity pick up through um, Europe, Asia, and Australia, um, and so no one is spared. Uh, I would say that from an event perspective, there's not a lot of difference. These are the same actors migrating from country to country. There aren't folks that are specific to certain jurisdictions, as far as we can tell. Um, and so the ransomware strains are very similar. Their tactics are similar. Companies operate in very similar ways and use similar vendors. So it's a lot of the same logistics, uh, which is helpful in some ways to certain markets where you may be able to learn from what's happened in the U.S. over the last three to five years. One thing I would say is there's a, there is a cultural element that are different in terms of approach and access to vendors, but also in principle. We, we do see in certain parts of the world folks saying we are not going to pay. And, and some of their regulators have been more forceful in saying that we don't think you should pay. Um, and we do see more data recovery and business interruption law in those jurisdictions they are just less likely to pay and more likely to try to figure it out over time. So that would be the one distinction that we see globally. I think from our perspective, Marcello, I agree with you that it's the same issues, uh, it's the same actors, and while a couple of years ago people would have said that if you were in Asia or parts of Europe, ransomware was just a U.S. problem, that's just not reflected in what we see, and certainly um, the scale of extortion demands uh, now in our region are getting much closer to the very big figures bandied about in the US. But the other thing I'd add here too is that if you want to think about ransomware as a cottage industry, uh, the cottage industry has obviously grown a bit. So there's more actors, there's more players. So there's obviously a need to go to different markets. And one of the things I always find particularly interesting speaking with some of our global colleagues is they are dealing with the very same ransomware actors in Europe or in different parts of Asia that we're seeing in Australia. So, unfortunately, this is most definitely a global problem. The next question I've got is focusing specifically around the notion of uh, confidentiality, leaking of ransomware and ransomware events getting into the media. Christina, I'll throw this to you firstly, but why do we think so many of these ransomware events and attacks are in the media now? And is there anything we think organisations can do to manage the risk of leaking or this information getting out? Well, I think the media element right now, unfortunately, it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy is that now that the media started to cover ransomware more, 
if they hear about another event, it's more likely to make headline news. And you're also starting to get situations where there's more of an incentive to leak the information because it's something that's newsworthy. Um, it's a sexy topic at this point. And the bigger issue is like, why are there leaks and where are they coming from? I have no clue where they're coming from. That's like the million dollar question. But the reality is, is that when there's these attacks, everyone within the company knows that something is going on oftentimes. I mean, no one can work. So it's really hard to keep every employee silent about it. And then the vendors probably know that something's going on as well because, you know, they can't get paid and there's not transactions happening. I mean, payroll isn't happening. So it's, you know, really, really difficult to keep all of the employees and touch points silent about a ransomware incident. Yeah, and there are reporters dedicated to cybersecurity who report on what they are hearing, both in the ecosystem and the dark web, that could out you. Uh, so it's very challenging. And again, another plug for an expert in terms of crisis communications. Um, I get someone else that's stepping up to help folks who, you know, whose team, internal team may not have computers. How do you navigate a multi-dimensional and multi-layered crisis plan in terms of what's going on? When are you going to be up? What's that issue? Data issues. Um, a lot of it is local. You're talking about local communities. Um, it can be regulatory. And, you know, as we've seen, you might be speaking to government um, and you might be brought before Congress. You really need to be thinking carefully about your communication um, when you're in real time and then when you're before uh, various governing bodies. One of the things that I'll add, Marcello, is when we look at a lot of our clients, uh, not just in Australia but globally, it is interesting how undercooked some of those comm plans are. They might have a good FAQ, they might have a good holding statement for what they'll say in day one or day two, but as you've said, if you think about a ransomware that's potentially impacting you for months more, if you think about the fact that it will impact stakeholders, your ability to pay suppliers, most of those other comms, in some cases the most commercially sensitive comms, they haven't really been thought of. And I do think that one of the reasons why we see so many of these is that the comm plans organisations are using just aren't well enough developed and they just aren't robust enough to survive, particularly the more complex and the more fundamental uh, ransomware attacks. It's a great point, Ben. Who's planning for are you going to continue to exist as a business? You know, I think it's just a fundamental challenge that folks need to be thinking about. I find it particularly interesting that a lot of organizations think a standard business continuity plan is going to work for a cyber event. A cyber event, from certainly our experience, is one of the few that actually impacts every single element of the business. It goes to the very, very core. It's so fast-moving. It's so dynamic. And one of the things that we certainly say to organisations is if you actually plug through the general BCP processes for a catastrophic cyber event, uh, they're not going to work particularly well. So hopefully that's an area where we'll see a little bit more robust investment uh, in the near future. For the next question, I was wanting to think about this idea of attackers and ransomware attackers going down supply chains, which we hear about more in the media. So do we think there are any key risks for organisations where uh, there are clients or there's some type of service provider of an organisation that's hit by a ransomware attack? Are we seeing any connection between subsequent ransom attacks being brought against a downstream client or client and social engineering forwards following ransom events? That's quite a long question, Marcello, so I'll throw it to you to unpackage. 
Yeah, no, we've definitely seen uh, the supply chain and vendors being targeted and attacked. I think the threshold reason was um, not only would they have a reason just as a business to want to pay because of the disruption, but then they were disrupting their whole client ecosystem and the ripple effect of all of that um, was something that they thought they could leverage, and they were fairly effective in leveraging it. I'd say on your second question about whether the bad guys are, are following the data and what they learn for uh, new opportunities, we don't know. But there are signs sometimes that an attack then starts to move into the same vertical or space or sets of relationships uh, that seems too coincidental. The only thing I would say that the reason I can say with certainty is most folks haven't really reported on those connections or seen definite connections of attribution. They also move from vertical to vertical um, and from size of company to size of company so fast that it's very difficult for us to derive a trend to say this is what they look to be doing. And one last thing, I, the whole time we've used they or these entities and haven't named them, we really don't know them that well. Um, they represent themselves with brands and strains and organ- there's research, but we really don't know who they are. And it's very difficult to get a lot of information and detail there. Your thoughts, Christina? Yeah, my th- I mean, it definitely, I guess like Marcella says, it's almost like it's too soon to tell with respect to the service providers or suppliers when they're getting attacked whether or not it's fanning out. I mean, I've definitely, we're seeing the shaming that Martella talked about where they might contact suppliers' clients and say, yeah, we have your data or we might post it or there might be a subsequent extortion as a threat against those clients you know, to keep the data from being exfiltrated. Um, but I'm not sure that there's enough information yet to know whether or not the information is being used to um, propagate subsequent ransomware attacks on those customers. It's definitely a theory, and I think that's a fear. I'm just not sure if it's happened yet. Just one last point. I only see my slice, and Christina only sees her slice, and Ben, you only see your slice. So putting it all together is difficult, even with other vendor partners, and that's why I do think some of the various governments' initiatives and task force work to compile data is an inventorying um, that, that, that's important uh, as a starting place and for future sort of understanding about what actually is happening. I agree completely, Marcello. I think the two that I'll add to this point is the concept of malicious actors going down supply chains uh, is not necessarily a new one. Uh, we can go as far back as things like Cloudhopper where we know that if there is certainly uh, an IT provider, uh, there's a lot of ease in terms of sliding down that supply chain and impacting affected customers. I do agree there's a bit of concern that what we're saying at the moment is more hype. The other thing that I find particularly interesting as well is we're probably taking the issue slightly narrowly where really the wider issue is for these malicious groups, as Marcello mentioned earlier, they want to be paid. Uh, What they're looking at is more and more creative ways of getting paid. And one of the ones that stood out in my mind was an incident we had with a client at the start of the year where... In this case here, they were able to get very sensitive personal information for uh, people that sat within the director and C-suite level. And using that, they undertook a whole bunch of frauds against family members. Uh, they tried to set up fake accounts. They tried to set up different types of things on trading platforms. 
And one of the things that struck me as we looked at the variance that occurred in that particular event here was any way where they can get paid, they will likely explore it. And when you start to think about it in those types of terms, supply chain is certainly possible, but I think the identity fraud and what you can actually leverage off some of those identity fraud attacks is an area that we're not thinking about enough and is an area that we'll probably see more activity in the next six to 12 months. Uh, any comments on that or any concluding comments, uh, Christina Marcello? The bad guys are smart and they're creative and they want to get paid. And these attacks will continue to morph because they need to incentivize the companies that continue to make payments. Yeah, my closing comments are that it's a really serious situation that now is getting a lot of attention from various parts of the cybersecurity and cyber risk and government, which hopefully will help create some solutions. And, you know, I just always remind folks that there is help. You know, these companies are, are victims um, that should be supported by the various experts, and there is help and solutions for folks that go through this. That's a great point, Marcello, and it's why we're here today, right, to help to bring your expertise to our listeners. So, Christina, Marcello, Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Listeners, I'm sure that you much preferred and enjoyed Ben's amazing Australian accent over mine. So, thank you, Ben, for being our guest moderator of the conversation today. Thank you, listeners, for joining in. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC. And be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year-round. Also, subscribe to the RSAC podcast on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app, and stay tuned for our next podcast. Interested in being a guest on our podcast? Visit rsaconference.com forward slash become a contributor to learn more. Thank you all so much.